Hi, I'm Sean Horn, founder and CEO of BeBell.ie. So what is BeBell? Well, it's a place of positivity. It's a place where you can be happy, be kind, be bold, feel supported and encouraged to fulfill your dreams. So come and join us on social media at BeBell underscore tribe or subscribe at BeBell.ie for future events and upcoming podcasts. With that in mind, welcome to series two. We've interviewed some amazing, inspirational women this series. So pop on your headphones, sit back, relax, and enjoy. So today I am delighted to have with us Jeannie Gianti from Alchemy Yoga Studios. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you keeping? I am really well. Very excited to have you on. I know we've spoken about it for a long time. So eventually we get round to it. We're both, I know, very busy in, in, in the movement world. Um, so how is everything going for you at the moment? Good. Although I've really taken on since the great pause I'm calling COVID um, to actually, I used to always just say, yeah, I'm fine. And I've really taken on, I think, being like, actually, how am I feeling? Um, so things are very changeable and it's obviously a turbulent time in people's personal lives and especially in the business world but overall I think things are are feeling it's sunny today so I'm feeling sunny too yeah the sun makes such a difference doesn't it yeah but we know that Bebel podcast is all about the person behind the business or the brand and so today I'd like to start back right at the beginning and um, where did it all begin for you well <laughs> I was born at 20 past 7 p.m <laughs> on the 5th of March, 1985, in the Ernzel Hospital. I know a lot of Cork people were birthed there. Um, and I actually recently started looking into astrology. So for anyone who's interested, I'm a Pisces with the Leo moon and Virgo rising, <laughs> which I never really believed in, um, or never really looked into astrology before, but the, the lady who did my chart explained it as what energy was in the universe when you breathed your first breath. So I thought that was really, cool way to look into it so that's what was happening when I was breathing my first breath um and I was the middle child although I was the baby for eight years nearly my brother came along after eight years and did um, you find that you had middle child syndrome because I was a middle child until I was seven I think it developed for sure um maybe when he was a bit older when uh maybe i was more able to be jealous of him i think <laughs> no until that actually i had i had a very beautiful childhood to be yeah. fair i was um, fortunate because another two came along so then i became the second oldest and it wasn't so bad okay that's a good that's a good role to be in yeah for sure <laughs> so you have one younger brother and one older older sister yeah and there's only 18 months between us so we're we're Irish twins almost, yeah, which means we're best friends and enemies at the same time. <laughs> Always fighting about clothes and stuff when we were kids. Um, so yeah, my mom was a teacher um, and my dad is what I jokingly say, and I'm sure he'll be listening, an unsuccessful entrepreneur in that he always had amazing ideas, uh, often didn't follow them through or, you know, just moved on to something else. So I definitely got a good balance from them both, I think, of kind of teaching skills, organizational skills, caring, nurturing side versus uh, my dad has innate um, ability to see opportunities and potentials and make things work, you know, um, which I didn't realize at the time, but now I realize are huge gifts in, in business and in your life, you know, what you want to do. Um, and my dad's a musician as well, and my mom would have been really into creative writing and um, not so much art. She didn't really have artistic skills of drawing and painting, but was very creative with food um, and with words. Language was her art, I suppose. Um, and so we had this very full, rich childhood of travel and music and, um, you know, fun. And there was always parties in our house. And my mom used to joke, collected strays in the sense that any kid who's in trouble or anyone who needed anything would end up in our house um and actually i've just had a memory my dad used to work for multi-channel just before it was a huge thing and so we were the first people to have multi-channel in the park and my mom i remember had to buy bean bags because there could be 
12 children at any time in our house watching TV. Um, and yeah, my mom used to say I danced out of the womb, that uh, I, I was dancing and moving from a really, really young age. Um, and I suppose that's where my movement love came from. I did ballet and jazz. And um, I was going to ask what you did. And did you, were you a tapper? We often talk about I really did tap dancing, actually. Ballet was definitely my first love. Um, and then I, I distinctly, it's one of my earliest memories. I think I was probably about seven, um, earliest clear memories, I suppose. And the teacher in the ballet school here in Ballet College, where I lived, um, said, you know, to my mom, we'd love Jean to go into the, the bigger class in town. We feel like she's gone to where she can here. And at the time, my mom was pregnant with my brother, and I'm sure she was exhausted. Um, and she said, you know, you'll have to give up speech and drama and horse riding and all these things if you go in to do town, because it would be four nights a week. And I also had an innate sense that I knew they couldn't afford it. You know, we, we got all these opportunities with ki as kids, but it was the 80s. People didn't have the disposable income they had now, you know. Um, so I remember having to give up dance then. And, uh, but I always still did movement. I never played sports or anything, actually, which is interesting, but I loved moving my body and I loved music. I never really played music either, but I loved listening to it. And how um, old were you when you gave up dance then? How old were you? Been yeah so I would have done it like religiously from three you know so it was a big chunk of my childhood um and yeah then I suppose teenage years and it's not cool to do ballet you know and boys come along and you're trying to be cool and <laughs> do all these things and and, and and you're saying that I started ballet at eight and oh, okay oh and I was I remember my first day actually I had to go in with all the three and four year olds and I was just mortified. <laughs> and the woman said, she'll be fine. And I, I, I mean, I went on to teach and, um, oh. but I, yeah, movement has always been part of my life and I loved ballet, um, but I was a tapper. Okay, that's your thing. That's my thing. <laughs> something beautiful about ballet, I think in the discipline of it. And again, it's something I didn't realize I got from it until later in life, you know, where, you know, you work hard, you work towards something, you're neat and tidy in your appearance. And, you know, it's a, it's a huge skill to have, even if you never use it, you know, as yeah. a profession, I suppose. Um, so, yeah, then I kind of started getting back interested in dance in my early teens. And then in school, we had um, a, like a fourth year play. And so I was one of the dancers and I started dancing a lot more then. So that was probably from about 15. Um, and yeah just kind of stuck with it I was always a really inquisitive child I used to be obsessed with how things worked um and that's why I loved movement actually because I was like oh what happens if I do you know move my arm this way and spin this way um and I had so many job ideas when I was a kid I was going to be an engineer I was going to be a police officer I was going to I don't know join the army the peace corps I had all these ideas um and then unfortunately didn't get great career guidance in school. And I remember putting down chemistry to study in university because I enjoyed science in school. Never, not, like I'm being totally honest now, not once did it cross my mind, why are you studying chemistry? What will you do afterwards? It was purely, I find this enjoyable, I'll study it. Um, which in, in essence is lovely, but two and a half years in, I was like, oh, I don't want to do any of these jobs. <laughs> Um, and I enjoy chemistry, but you know, when you study something at university level, it's so in depth that I was like, okay, I like the overall ideas, but not getting them into the nitty gritty stuff. Yes. Um, but totally used, I went to UCC, totally used UCC as an opportunity. I was in the dance club, the chemistry society, this society. I was, you know, party girl, my mom called me. I was always at a party, always doing something, organizing something, being involved in something. And what kind of dance were you doing at UCC? Did you mix um, it up? Yeah, the dance club was pretty new. I would have gone in 2003, I think. So it was pretty new then. And there was a bit of ballroom dance. And then myself and two other girls um, and another guy, Stephen, we kind of got together and, you know, said, OK, I can teach ballet, you can teach hip hop. And so we kind of um, made it a bit of a bigger 
thing where there was a huge variety of classes on and we got great support actually financially and um you know we got to use the, the dance studio in the Mardyk is amazing it's huge yeah. and um so yeah that was that was really again amazing experiences of organizing events and and was that your first experience of teaching groups of people yeah it was actually and i remember my dance teacher it was philip mctaggart Walsh that i went to he had asked me to cover a class for him and i was like i can't teach and he was like so long as you know more than the people you're teaching you're fine you know um so i kind of went in nervously and then realized whoa i love this you know i really enjoy this and i think i'm good at it you know um because you know you know yourself just because you're good at something doesn't mean you can teach it no it's kind of a different skill set and actually and some of the best teachers aren't the best at it exactly because they have had to work to try and get good at it you know yeah. um because yeah i would have always fallen into that category where i was good but i was never the best you know um and you know the dance world is fickle in that it's all they want a specific body type and you know some days you're too tall other days you're too short then you're too fat you're too thin you're too dark you're too blonde and I never thought of pursuing it as a career it yeah. was purely my sport you know my enjoyment um but as I worked up through the four years in college I was kind of thinking okay I don't necessarily want to go into any of these jobs that most people go into after studying chemistry um what will I do? And I had traveled every year in, in the summers, which um, might not be listening, but a friend of mine, Ian, that I used to work with, he was a few years ahead of me and he said, whatever you do in university, travel every summer because you're never going to have four months off again, or you might not. Um, and so I... Where did you go? I worked in a bar in Lanzarote for one summer with my friend. My dad was living over at there at the time and had a bar. So I arrived over thinking, you know, we were going to have a bit of fun um and suddenly he made me manager total um nepotism but it was amazing i was 19 i didn't know what i was doing <laughs> but that was that was fun um and then the next year i went to india for four months i lived in a slum in delhi would you believe teaching children um again total just walking through college one day and a girl handed me a flyer and said do you want to teach india do you want to teach children in india the summer and I was like yeah, yeah I do and I just came home to my mom and I was like I'm just going to Delhi there for four months to live in a slum and like this was before not before the internet but like we didn't have mobile phones we yes. didn't have data I used to have to go once a week to an internet cafe to tell her the lies um you know there was no google maps you had to find your way around the slums and the city of Delhi on your own how did you um, find that Ginny because like I, it's a place that I've always wanted to go but I'm su such an emotional person I've always struggled if I cope very well yeah India is Marmite I always say you love it or you hate it and I've never met anyone where India didn't have an effect on them either way like no one goes to India and is like meh you know yeah people love with it they think it's their second home or they want to get out of there as soon as they can and I think it depends on the mindset you go in with I was 19 and the world was beautiful and everything was fab and so I went in and saw the the beauty there of course there's horrific hardship like it's horrific um but the kind the kindness from the people there is phenomenal because everyone is living on the bread line in the slums definitely um they will give you the clothes off their back the water that they have for the day um it was tough teaching the kids in the sense that i was teaching them stuff that they might never use because especially the girls your goal is to get married to because your parents can't afford to feed you after a certain time um and so there was a sadness in that all right um but then i kind of looked at it at the point of view at least they're using their brains at least they're doing something and okay maybe they'll never use algebra in a setting of math but they might when they're trying to feed their family with x yeah. number of money and you know um but i i remember coming home thinking they're fine we're fucked up oh, sorry am i allowed to curse <laughs> you're allowed to curse we, we do cursing on here <laughs> i'm a cursor um and I was like, they're, they know what's important. They have nothing, but they know what's important. And we're here crying over, you know, stuff that maybe isn't so much. So I think because I got to spend so much time there and really get to know the culture and the people, 
and was with a group of people who were really open-minded and a lot of them were older than me so I really learned a lot and grew, grew a lot that summer um I kind of came home with the view of god the world is beautiful even in the darkest moments it's beautiful um and my love affair with India started then I remember arriving in Delhi airport the doors opened and it's such a shock to your sensory system the smell the heat the smog and I just felt at home it was just this instant oh my god I've lived here before I've been here before um, and it's such an ancient culture like the the vibrancy there is amazing yeah that kind of started my love affair but to maybe go back a bit yeah I, I know I didn't do it. we always picked up strays but there was a huge kind of sense of charity in our house always you know like my mom was always donating money that we didn't really have um you know we always helped people and that was kind of ingrained in us it was it was natural in us it wasn't even we were told to do it it was just yeah how we were raised you know um so I always kind of did fundraising stuff because the next summer then I did my J1 I lived in Chicago for a summer which was amazing because we were 21 so we could drink and you know that's a big thing when you go to America if you're not 21 and you know we did the classic slept on air mattresses for four months and ate you know bags of popcorn. And did you like America? Chicago is an interesting place because it's America's second city and it's um quite new in the sense that they had a huge fire there in kind of the late 1800s so it's only like a 200 year old city which is really new so it's quite clean and organized and what's amazing about it is it's a city but it has a huge lake lake michigan which has a beach so you kind of get the beachy life and the city life so i enjoyed um i enjoyed chicago um at the time i maybe things have really changed now but i could not get over the waste and the uh, like the uh excess there it's it was almost disgusting you know like you might go in to buy a pack of chewing gum and they'll put two plastic bags around it and there was a lot of stuff and then it's very unhealthy i used to have to get i think a tram and two buses to the nearest supermarket that sold vegetables and fruit and i was living in the city you know um and i could totally see why they have an obesity epidemic and you know if you don't have money you can't afford to buy fresh yes. vegetables Whereas if you have a dollar, you can get McDonald's burger and drink. So, and it's all on every corner. So I found it hard to be healthy there. And I'm like not a health freak at all, but I found it hard to, I really appreciated when I came home that you can go into a Centra here or a petrol station and buy an apple or a banana, you know, which yeah. I never thought I would. But no, no America. Is, and, and our bodies tell us straight away. Like I recently did, um, you know, like a meat diet, and I'd the craving for fruit and veg was astronomical. Yeah. My body was just saying, "This is no good for you. You have to get, you know, that into." And I, oh, the day I had a strawberry was just like, oh, <laughs> it was probably like the nicest strawberry you've ever tasted. It was the best strawberry ever, and I'm allergic to strawberries, but I didn't care. I ate it. Oh my God. <laughs> And then got hives. <laughs> but I thought to, to kind of summarize that question, there is a, a bit of an unnaturalness I find with, in America, which can be amazing in that it's your wildest dreams can come true. But like, sometimes even I was drinking the water and I was like, is there sugar in the water? You know, it's like yeah. everything is flavored or tasted there. Um, yeah. But a great summer, you know, we had such a good time. And then my final year, I went to Brazil another charity trip where we were building houses there um so i can plaster if anyone needs um a plaster it's not going to be smooth but i can definitely uh, throw it against the wall <laughs> that was another amazing experience to do to do that stuff um but where was i going with that oh yeah so basically i traveled done all this stuff so i knew i didn't want to take like the gap year after university and travel um so i decided to study dance for a year purely out of interest um so i went to see on nefa and did a diploma in dance there and it was quite funny because i was 23 maybe at the time and most other people going were 17 and just on their leaving cert or hadn't done their leaving cert but were you know just out of school um they were all doing it with the view of i'm going to make it on broadway in the west end and this is going to be my job um whereas i got to be there for pure enjoyment um and again learned so much on that training and again discipline commitment 
Um, and that's where I discovered yoga, would you believe? So we used to do yoga on a Monday morning uh, for flexibility and stability and stuff. And um, I was really fortunate that one of my classmates, um, Alva, her mom is a yoga teacher and Alva grew up with yoga because her mom, uh, Yoga Sutra is her name, or Sarah Murphy, she teaches in Key Yoga. Um, she has been a yoga teacher for all of Alva's life and so yoga is just their philosophy. And so we'd be doing a posture and Alva would lean over and she'd be like, this is amazing for chocolate cravings because it stimulates your pancreas and releases serotonin. And, you know, and I was like, and suddenly my world of science and dance came together, of movement came together where I felt like it was movement with meaning or movement with a purpose, with like a higher purpose. Um, and I'd always been really anti-church and I was that total kind of liberal child who wanted to go against the grain and do differently what everyone else was doing. And so it was when I found yoga that I realized, okay, actually having a faith in something is important. It doesn't have to be an organized religion. Um, and so yoga really opened up the kind of spirituality part of it. More so later, the more I studied it, I was a bit more uh, obsessed, I'm going to use that word, with the movement initially. Um, but I did the year and I kind of started to, um, I was still teaching dance. Um, and then sadly that, March, so I was supposed to graduate from that diploma in May. That March, my mom passed away. So the previous December, she'd been re-diagnosed with breast cancer. She'd initially got breast cancer when I was 12. She was only 36, which at the time, because I was 12, she was ancient. Yeah. I'm 35 now, and I'm like, wow, she was so young, you know? And she'd been in remission for 12 years, um, but unfortunately came back in her liver her bones and her lungs so we were basically told in december she had weeks if not months to live which was a real struggle and i was quite an immature 23 year old at the time looking back now um and so that was that was a really really tough time my parents had split up and my dad was living in lanzarote so it was literally um myself my sister my brother and my mom um and so, yeah, that, that was tough. That was really, really tough. And um, to be fair, and my sister was kind of on that. You out of your siblings who took the lead. I know that always one will take the lead. Yeah. And even though I was only 18 months younger, um, I suppose I was definitely more immature. My sister had been working for a few years and was always more mature anyway. Um, and I suppose almost guiltily now I feel... I let her take that slack, you know, um, and our family were amazing because my brother was only 15 when my mom died, so he was still in school, uh, we were left with a mortgage to pay, um, you know, bills that we weren't used to paying, shopping, we needed to do uniforms to be washed, again, our family all stepped in, they were amazing, um, my dad came home, um, you know, it was uh, definitely a huge adjustment, but it was a big shock to be like, okay, you know, my dream of dancing and floating around the world is now maybe uh, cut short slightly. Um, and so I just pulled on my big girl pants and started applying for jobs in pharmaceutical companies. Um, and I got one straight away, which is really lucky to do. And I actually quite enjoyed it initially. And that was just maternity leave that I did. And then I got offered in another company a permanent job. And in that maternity leave contract that I'd done, I had started thinking, okay, I really love teaching. And I thought I'd go and teach chemistry and math because that's what I studied in secondary school. And on the day I got offered my place to, to, to go back to college to study to be a teacher, I got offered a permanent pension of a job in like the best pharmaceutical company in Cork. And I was a bit like, what do I do? And then I just figured I can go back and become a teacher at any time. Whereas I think I need the stability and take this job now. So I did, and I was working um, in Eli Lilly in Kinsale for six, nearly seven years. Wow. And I adored it. I loved people I worked with. It was an amazing community down there. They really value women in business, actually. There was nine, seven or nine managers. There was nine managers in the lab, and seven of them were women. Um, so it's a real... Um, it was a really really good place to work yes um and i think i was there about a year and a half and i was called in for a review and i remember my my manager at the time natanya who i recently met on a retreat she came to one of my things um 
she kind of said, you know, we've kind of, you know, earmarked you for management. We're really happy with your work. And down the line, like, we want you to go into management and we're going to maybe fast track you up. And I was just sitting there sweating, being like, oh, I don't want to do this at all. And I'm being offered this amazing opportunity. Um, and I said it to her recently when I met her and she's like, I knew you'd go. She was like, you aren't staying here at all. <laughs> um, so long story shorter, um, I was there for six years, but I knew there was just this part of me that was just like, this isn't what I want to do. And when did that conversation happen? How long had you been there before they had earmarked you for promotion oh maybe maybe a year and a half I was there no I wasn't going to be promoted that so it was kind of like you know we want to kind of put yeah. you into different roles to work you up to there yes. yeah yeah but I think I think what what Natanya this manager was amazing for is um you know in these big corporations there's a lot of red tape and so for the first few months I really couldn't do anything I was training and so I had a lot of free time and she basically said to me I want you to observe everything we're doing because you have fresh eyes, and if you think we can do something better, tell me. And I'm so, by nature, I'm a lazy person. I don't sound it, because I sort of get up and go, but if I can find a shortcut, I'll find that shortcut. And so I loved doing that. I loved being like, why are you spending eight hours doing that when you could have rent it out? And, you know? and yeah. so there was a lot of stuff like that, I think, that she valued in me, that I wasn't afraid to be like, you're wasting your time, why are you doing that? You know, um, Which, as a manager, is your role to try and find the easiest and most efficient way to do it. And I know Steve Jobs is famous for doing that, or was famous, in that he would give the toughest job to the laziest person in the office because they'll find the best and quickest way to do it. Um, but yeah, I, there was huge perks to being there, um, you know, financially, and, you know, I didn't mind the work. But I think having gone into it initially with that view of, I'm kind of only doing this because I suddenly have to be an adult um, and there was always this that wild part of me that didn't want that permanent stable job um, but funnily enough they had yoga on a Tuesday and Thursday at lunchtime and we had amazing teacher roles and I just fell back in love with yoga there um, and in the meantime I'd done lots of other fitness like I, I did a lot of CrossFit I love Olympic weightlifting actually I'm kind of short and stocky by stature so I'm built for lifting up heavy stuff um, and I love the rush of it I'm a sprinter as well in the sense that I can lift one thing really quickly that's really heavy instead of doing loads of reps you know um, so again still exploring movement how things worked you know I was testing and making pharmaceutical drugs that were literally saving people's lives so it's still very much in that healing kind of science sense place but yeah. working for a pharmaceutical companies very different from other stuff um and then while i was there um i was out one night in reardon's of all places i think i've been there maybe five times in my whole life um but for people who are not from cork it's it's the place that is kind of known as you go to meet your husband or your wife kind of you know if you're on the pull is that where you met lee no i actually met lee at a wedding and i've only been to reardon's twice and i would say one time i went there i thought it was like copperface jacks and another time i went there it was a bit milder <laughs> I, I think you're being very diplomatic and generous there. <laughs> I'm good at that. <laughs> well, I was with friends anyway, and we were, uh, we were having a few drinks. And it was like a scene in a movie. Suddenly, the, see, the people parted and I saw this guy. And I was just like, oh, my God. And I was like, is this tequila or is this him? <laughs> and he was kind of standing there then. And maybe this person is listening. But some random hen, it was the bride because she had the veil on, yeah. grabbed his hand, pulled him over to me and just said, would you ever stop staring at that girl and buy her a drink? And then suddenly we were talking. Um, and here was this, as I, would, I, as I used to call him Prince Charming, this guy called Dan from London who spoke like Prince William and uh, was is absolutely beautiful. Um, and we got very, very drunk because, as you know, a double in England oh, is yeah. not a double here. No, <laughs> it's he's single. Doubles, which is like treble, basically. Yeah. <laughs> so we stayed in touch and we started seeing each other. And he, I was flying, he, we would fly over and back from London. Um, and then I think we were seeing each other about five months. And, you know, we were talking every day, writing, we used to write each other letters. 
and he had a few weeks off and so did I and he said why don't we go cycling in the Hebrides in uh, Scotland which we did and it was literally like everything we had was on our bikes and we were sitting on the beach one day bearing in mind I were together five months and he just said will you marry me and I was like I think initially I said what the fuck <laughs> How old are you, Jane? Now, I would have been 28. Okay. 28. Yeah, yeah, you would definitely have said, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, and he was 24. Actually, he was much younger than me, even though he's very mature and looked much older as well. Um, and then I said yes, because I didn't really think you could say no. <laughs> now, of course, I was also madly in love. I should say that we were madly in love. Um, and when we met, we were very much on the same path. You know, we loved the same things. Um, and then he was, it was always his plan to join the army. So his dad is Irish. He grew up in England. He was born there. His dad moved there in, for university and his mom is English. Okay. Um, so sports Ireland and the rugby, which is very important in his family. Oh, um, and he had looked at joining the Irish army, actually, but decided to join the British army. Um, and so that was kind of always in the back of my mind, you know, okay, we're never going to be in Ireland if he's working for the British Army. But also there was this huge excitement of, you know, of this new world that I could be in. Um, and yeah, we got married two years later. Um, but in that year, so we got married. And then the year after we got married, I did my yoga teacher training. So I left Lily. Okay. I, we couldn't, we'd have to keep long distancing. And he went to join the army, so was doing his year and a half of training. Um, and so I think our lives that had been so on path literally went in opposite directions. Um, now we were married for a beautiful three years. Most of it was lovely. And we're still really, really good friends. Um, I had a huge opportunity to see this world of the British army as, a, as an army wife, which, I'm going to write a book about it someday. It's a whole other podcast. Shop yeah. The social side. It's, it's insane. It's insane. You might know a bit more about it. But I think as Irish people, it's this world we have no idea about. Um, and I was socialising with people who grew up on council estates. And then the next day, I was socialising with someone who used to be the events coordinator in Buckingham Palace. You know? And I remember one day, this lady said to me, Jean, do you ride? And I was like, ride what? <laughs> <laughs> All my friends like, I can't believe you said that. And she's like, horses, Jean, horses, do you ride horses? And I was like, I can get up on a horse like, if you want me to. Um, so I had this amazing year, I made amazing friends, um, learned, or three years, I should say, learned so much. Yeah. Uh, we lived in Germany for a year and a half, and we lived in the UK for a year and a half. Um, and I got to teach yoga to all of the uh, communities. Like for every soldier, there's, usually three dependents like a partner and two children or you know there's this huge expat community of people where you are who need stability and groundedness and to feel like not stressed and you know you've people who never know where they're going to be in six months time their kids are moving schools there's huge social issues there so I felt like I could really develop my craft as a teacher there but also provide an amazing service there yes um and actually, I was only chatting to someone the other day. Nine of my students from my army days are now yoga teachers. Wow. And they're all Amazing. in the army community all around the world, which just gives me so much joy to think, you know, um, that that service is still there. Yeah. Um, but I also got to work with a lot of, well, they call them whizzes, which is wounded, injured and sick soldiers. So a lot of the rehab stuff, which was fascinating. And I was really lucky they had a centre in Germany, Farish, where the guy who ran the centre had been injured in Afghanistan. And he said yoga and meditation was the only thing that saved him. Because for every physical injury, as you know, there's a huge mental, emotional, physical, um, you know, there's that psychosomatic thing. Um, and so he literally said to me, I want you twice a week. It's mandatory for everyone to do and name your price. So I had amazing support there, which was huge to use my skills as a teacher to be like, okay, I'm not going to get them chanting or saying namaste, but how can I bring the yoga qualities into their world? Yeah, and their life, because it's not the same for everybody. As, a, and as, as anything is in life, we all take what we need from it. Yeah, 
Um, and that, that, was, that was such a beautiful thing I was able to do. Um, and then we moved back to the UK for a year and a half again, which was lovely, but there's not so much of a tight-knit community there because everyone's kind of at home, even if they're yeah. not from their hometown. Um, and that's definitely when the loneliness started to creep in and myself and Dan started, like we, we used to have like not crazy wild fights, but we used to fight over stuff. And we kind of got into that complacency stage where it's like we won't even bother fighting, which is worse, I think. Um, and then anyone who's ever done long distance it's very difficult when there's this constant coming and going and you know he'd be away in america for two months back for a week off to germany for three weeks home you know there that's worse than someone being on tour for six months and coming home i think you're constantly having to adapt how you live together um and I'm, I remember. I did actually. I always said I'd like to marry someone that was on the oil rigs because there were two weeks on, two weeks off. <laughs> it's tough, yeah. And actually, bearing in mind that, like, even in the oil rigs, I imagine it's a really male-dominated place. So, like, Dan would have been living in the wild, doing manly alpha male stuff, talking manly crap for two months straight, and then coming into me you know vibrant feminine uh like it's a huge shift for people it's very very difficult there's a lot of uh this huge percentage of marriage breakups in um in the courses for sure um but yeah we just had a, a really silly fight one day over posting a letter and we were like what are we doing we're young you know we're friends but we're not lovers anymore you know like we we're just holding each other back at this stage and you know starting to resent each other and so it was a tough decision because I was particularly you know divorce has done a huge this huge uh, stigma in Ireland for sure um but I realized that the main reason I was, we were staying together was we were afraid of what people would think and I think yeah. that's the worst reason to stay together um so we had a very amicable divorce where we shared a solicitor <laughs> to save money yeah. and just everything in half literally even to the point I was telling someone the other day we had bought a bed in Germany and in Germany you don't buy a double mattress you buy two single mattresses that stick together and when we were when I was leaving I was like I'm just going to take my mattress that's okay oh, and I left him with the bed and just a big hole in the side of the bed um, you know what that's the way to do it I always say to people in any partnership marriage whatever Arguments actually only happen because of solicitors normally most of the time because they've got to make their money. So yeah. to share one makes complete sense and more people should do it. Yeah. No, the solicitor was like, he kept saying to me, you should seek independent you know, advice. And I was like, I trust him. And then someone said to me, oh, you're entitled to a percentage of his pension. I was like, I don't care. I was like, that means he's entitled to some of my pension and having worked in a much better job, let's just, you know, yeah. but um, and I actually met up with him recently when I was in London and it was lovely to see, you know, we're still, we don't ring each other every day, but we're definitely not enemies at all. Um, so yeah, so then I came home. <laughs> How long is this podcast? As long as you want it to be. I'm, I'm sitting, I'm fascinated. Keep going. <laughs> um, and I, I very much was of the opinion, if I go back into the corporate world, I'll find it really hard to leave. Yeah. And so I had a little bit of savings and I was like, okay, I'm just going to really try and make this work now. And if it doesn't, I have the experience and the degree and, you know, the ability to go back to that permanent pension job if I need to. Um, and it was tough when I came back because, you know, the army always provided a house for us. Dan had that stable income. Um, you know, I always supported us as well with other stuff, but I, you know, had a much more unstable income. Yeah. Um, and so I had to, you know adapt very quickly and live frugally um and figure everything out and i still kept studying yoga i was doing new courses and when i moved home i definitely felt like there was a gap here in the yoga world in the sense of i found it hard to find a community um you know there was i'm not saying all people who were here were terrible people but i couldn't find my tribe you know and yeah bell tribe is you know it's, it's not for everyone it's for the people who want to be in it um and then slowly I started to meet other teachers and I was like okay here we are now you know you kind of have to get into the underground places sometimes to to find your tribe um and so just slowly started teaching classes 
workshops and um, bringing in all my skills I think definitely retreats and kind of more events is my uh my area of expertise and what I love like I said something the other day they're like what you like you're more than a yoga teacher what do you do and I was like I think I'm a, event, a yoga events curator <laughs> like that's what I do um and yeah events are retreats for me are amazing um you know it's more than just picking a venue and putting on a yoga class it's the hosting it's the the little details you know um so started to do all of that and then a beautiful girl helena who had a studio called yoga le Grau, uh met me for coffee one day in alchemy cafe actually and said you know i've decided to just pack it all up I you know I love yoga but teaching isn't for me right now and I have other plans and should I've come to terms with the studio closing but ideally I would love someone to take it over and I love you too so like instantly my gut said yes and this is how I operate in business and in life I go with that gut feeling but I did give myself the chance to be like okay let's look at the numbers now and see can you afford this and will it work course Selena was a huge help there and it was a bit of a whirlwind in that she asked me in October two weeks later I left for eight weeks in India to do more training and then I had two weeks and I came home to open the studio yeah. so it was very intense and I definitely feel like I was kind of scrambling and you know smiling you know while painting a wall and being like yeah welcome yeah. <laughs> which I know you're probably used to but I knew I needed to do it um and then i suppose yeah that's when alchemy school of yoga was born in its uh premises sense um and i really wanted well alchemy because helena asked me in alchemy but also because i feel yoga is so transformational but also because i'm a chemist by trade and alchemists were the yeah. old chemists who tried to turn impure metals into pure things like gold which i really feel is what yoga is it's like here's all this crap that we've accumulated let's purge and clean and cleanse the body inside and out your whole being so that you can shine like gold you know um and then i definitely wanted the word school in there being an educator and also because i felt like there was such a lack it's a really poorly regulated industry the yoga training side um and there's very there's very few people teaching yoga teacher trainings who are teachers you yeah. know so um i definitely wanted to do that but i also feel like for me and this is something i'm working on at the moment is most people who want to learn more about yoga have to do a yoga teacher training but they will never teach and so much of that course is the art of teaching well on some in some courses yeah. where, that they don't need so i'm actually working on at the moment what i'm calling yoga school which is going to be like a online and in person way for people to learn more about yoga who don't want to be teachers and i think that's really important i mean, i certainly i teach a lot of people in pilates that have gone and done the Pilates course as well, because they wanted to know some, you know, they wanted to know more, um, but no intention of ever teaching it. Yeah. Um, and actually probably I was the opposite. I did it for myself initially because I needed it. And then thought, I can't not share this. Mm. And I love teaching in whatever form it comes in, whether that be teaching someone about business or teaching them Pilates. I just like teaching people. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's so special, I think, any kind of movement. I love all movement. And I think it's so special to be able to give that to somebody else. Absolutely. It's a skill for life. And I think people really realize this in lockdown. It doesn't matter what car is parked in your driveway if you're, if you're not even able to cope with living. And it sounds a bit kind of fundamental, but yoga literally gives me the tools to cope with being alive. Yeah. This absolute roller coaster of life you know, my teacher always says it allows you to ride the waves smoothly instead of it being like still lake tsunami, still lake tsunami, you know. Um, and even just to go back to what you were saying there, I definitely have to mention you and Network Cork in general. When I moved home, I was like, I'm a businesswoman. Am I? I don't think I am. Am I? You know, I'm a yoga teacher. Um, and then through meeting you and people in Network Cork and all the support you guys give so generously. Um, 
I was just like, oh my God, you can be in business and be a nice person. What is this a revelation, yeah. you know? And look at all these amazing women who are doing it beautifully and from that really feminine nourishing place that it is an all cutthroat and hard, you know? And that was a huge turning point for me that kind of, I always had these innate business qualities, but I was afraid to show them in the yoga world because often mm-hmm. it's kind of seen as, you know, you're selfish or, you know, you're just about yeah. money. Um, and I really feel strongly that we need more yoga people in business. You know, you don't have to be a yoga teacher, but bringing in the yogic ethos of running a business, you know? Yeah, it, it's funny because actually when you, so in, I went on a course and I, I do this with a lot of business people that I work with. And I ask them a lot of questions about whether they're following their passion. Okay. And yoga does that in Dharma and Karma. Yeah, absolutely. But the problem with a lot of people is they think they have to be heavy on the sacrifice to get what they want. And you hear people saying, you know, you must work so hard. And, you know, we, I never stop. And I, and I, I kind of worked that out quite a while ago, quite a long time, well, well before COVID anyway, that that wasn't how I wanted to live my life anymore. Um, but I did used to say things like, oh, they must be a yogi because only someone that practiced yoga would say things to me like, actually, Sean, I don't think I want to do that. It doesn't really work for me. And I'd be like, what do you mean it doesn't work for you? It needs to be done. And I'd go, yeah, I think somebody that likes doing it, though, should do it. And I'd be like, I could never understand it. But when I understand the philosophy of yoga, then I get it. So I think, I think it's something that can be brought into business very easily. And actually, when I did some practice on it with them, um, I went on a yoga retreat there three weeks ago and did some practice on it myself. I was like, God, this is really strange, actually. These are nearly almost the same questions I ask people about business. And, you know, when you, when you follow your passion, your business is your life anyway. So it has to be your passion. It has mm-hmm. to you have to enjoy doing it. You know, and like you said, it doesn't have to be this hard slog, you know, Um, and when it is a hard slog, you start hating it and it becomes work. And so I'm always um, teetering on that edge of, okay, I could technically teach that other job, you know, bring in loads of income. Do I want to give up the free time and what's my free time worth? What's my time with my family, my friends, you know? Um, but the Dharma karma thing is interesting um, because a lot of people think karma is I have to suffer. Yes. But actually, karma is freely giving your service with no expectation of a reward. But it's kind of almost that once you give up that expectation of the reward, the rewards come. But you can't think that, you know, so it's a bit of a convoluted one. But another bit of philosophy that you might be interested in here and anyone else listening is uh, what the yogis call the Purusharatas. Um, and these are from the, one of the most ancient texts, the Upanishads. And they're basically four aims of life. And um, one is Kama, which is pleasure. And you might be aware of the Kama Sutra. Um, but pleasure doesn't always have to be sexual. It's great when it is, but it doesn't have to be. It can be boring. So like hearing a child laughing, that strawberry, you had karma flowing yeah. through your body when you met that strawberry, that pleasure, that sensual, beautiful stuff. So there's um, your dharma is one of them. So your purpose. And once you know your purpose, arta will come into life, which is abundance. And once you have the abundance, you'll be able to experience karma, which is the pleasure. And then they all lead up to moksha, which is liberation. And people think of liberation as like the heavens opening and you start floating and you know, you're a levitating yogi. But actually liberation is being able to enjoy life, the mundane in life, the excitement of life. Um, and so I always think that's a lovely way in business to think of once you're following your passion, truly the abundance will come. And it's not always financial. It could be in love. It could be of support. And I noticed this actually in lockdown. My teachers were like just went above and beyond to keep the studio open as did my students whether it was financial donations or health you know and it just shows that okay abundance doesn't have to be financial it is just all these people who are like we believe in what you're doing too and we want to keep it going 
Um, but I think with Dharma, you need to give yourself permission every day to change. So you're like my Dharma right now is being a yoga business owner, creating a community for the students and the teachers, of course, to explore yoga. But in 10 years time, it could shift to something else that's along the same lines. But, you know, like your Dharma could be being a parent. Your Dharma could be being a partner. It could be being a pet owner be growing tomatoes it doesn't have to be your career but when your dharma is your job it is easier to do it it is sense. kind of a little bit magical though when there is because yeah it makes life pretty good i have to say yeah. I, I do live in my dharma so i'm i'm you yeah, yeah I'm, you're a yogi and i always say this like you know there's just different names for yogis you know to me it's anyone who's vibrant and passionate and they say you can always tell a yogi by their eyes their eyes sparkle um, and unfortunately, there's so many people who are so stagnant is the only word I can think of, you know, where they're just, they think that if they do this job and buy this car and live here and do this, and, and there's just, you know, and I get it that the society is telling us these are the things you need to do when actually there's no vibrancy in us, you know. And it's having the confidence to say, that's not for me, actually. Yeah. This, is, this is what I'm going to do. But uh... yeah. Jenny, listen, thank you so much. I could talk all day. We have to take a, a little question from the pot. So this, these questions are left by the predecessors. Um, first one, what one thing can't you live without? Can I say two things? <laughs> oh, go on then, go on then, you're allowed. Well, instantly the two things that came to mind were food and my dog. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't have a dog, but food, I'm, I'm, I'm with it. And finally, the last one. What one thing would you like to share with the world? Ooh, again, I'm gonna go with my heart. Yeah. My heart actually is is love, and I know that sounds so. Oh, Namaste, I'm a yoga teacher, <laughs> but I just think I'm a beautiful teacher. Actually, her mantra is whatever the question, love is the answer. And that's really hard to remember when someone's pissed you off, but actually when they have that person that's hurting so much. Yeah. Um, I saw a really funny post the other day that's like, you know you've got to that state of psychological understanding when someone's really annoyed you, but you actually understand why they've annoyed you. Yeah. <laughs> and that you're in love anyway. But yeah, I think sharing your heart with people is so beautiful. I think that's an important point, actually. I'm quite good at, and I think it has to do with age. When you get older, is if somebody's mean, I always want to know why they were. Yeah. Because there's normally a reason, and there's normally a story behind that. So, People are inherently good, and it sounds maybe non-realistic to think like that, but they are known as born hating or wanting to cause harm. And unfortunately, we just live in a society that doesn't always foster people being loving you know yeah. no it's difficult Ginny thank you so so much thanks um god we'll have to we'll have to have that conversation and we'll have to do another one just about um being the wife of a army officer <laughs> we'll have to do it again but it was brilliant I'm gonna write a book so watch out for the book the fictional oh, based on true life yeah and I guess sometimes <laughs> brilliant I look forward to it thank you